The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and market analysis and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll go big on the market turmoil this week. What's driving the biggest flows? Where has the volume been heaviest? And is now the time for active management? Plus, we'll talk thematic trends and drill down on new ETF products that help you stay in the market while weathering the storm. We've got two of the best in the business with us today. Dave Nautics, the CIO and Director of Research at ETF Trends, along with Brian Lake. He's the Global Head of ETF Solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Ryan, uh, you oversee the largest active fixed income ETF. That's the ultra short income ETF. Tell us why active management, in your opinion, is again becoming a big play in 2022. Yeah, thanks, Bob. I, you know, I think the key is it, it combines the best of both worlds. Uh, you've got the benefits of the ETF wrapper, trades throughout the day, tax efficient, transparent, uh, with the intentionality of, of active management, a, a portfolio manager that knows exactly what they own, why they own it. Uh, when it when it goes into the portfolio, and um, you know, as a lot of a lot of uh, folks on this on this show have talked about in the past, or you know, that are on 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 CNBC all the time, talk about why they own things, and I think it's important that investors want to know why they own it, and so to have intentional investing from a portfolio manager, uh, I think that's that's why active ETFs are having such a big year already in 2022. Speaking of a lot of trading, uh, Dave, I want your take here. I want to go back to the active trading part, but give us your take on the trading this week. I saw volume four or five times uh, normal in some of the big exchange-traded funds like the S&P 500. Uh, that's trading, but what about flows? What did you see in terms of flows? Yeah, well, the last five days have been great from an ETF flows perspective. We've had about 14, uh, 13, $14 billion flow into equities. About two-thirds of that has been international. We've seen a lot of folks allocating into domestic emerging, uh, or sorry, to emerging to developed markets internationally. Europe has been getting a bit of a bid. But there's still been 4 or $5 billion in new flows into U.S. equities just in the last five trading sessions. So to me, that means that we've really had a, a raft of advisors and investors who've been looking looking to buy the dip here. Um, we've seen no evidence that the ETF side of the balance sheet, if you will, is what's panicking and pushing the button to sell. If you look at things like the volume weighted average price, even in something like the queues, there really hasn't been any volume at the tails. The volume has been very much right in the center of the trading where we'd expect. It hasn't been a lot of folks just using the ETF to whipsaw. It's been folks using the ETF to allocate. And uh, Dave, while we're on the subject, we were just chatting with Brian about active management. Do you think there is going to be significant upside for active management this year because of the market volatility? We've talked about this so many times, and it always essentially peters out. Indexing still wins out, but is well, this you know, something it, different? It is a little bit different. The last three or four years have been really different with active management coming in in a big way, and it hasn't just been sort of short-term fixed income. With all due respect to JPSD, which is a great fund, we've seen active equity show up in a big way. We had about 13% of the flows last year come into active ETFs. That was a big uptick from the sort of 11% we were seeing before. A great chart we've seen from FactSet. You guys just put it up there quickly. Those flows into active just continuing to come in year after year, increasing increasing. 
I wouldn't be surprised to see a 15% year for active management this year. Uh, I think the volatility in the market is good, at least for the story of active management. Whether or not sort of traditional active stock picking equity managers are going to be able to outperform, that I remain skeptical of. But I think there's really a place for active management when folks are looking at the corners of their portfolios. Yeah, I agree. It's good for the story of active management, for sure. Uh, Brian, there's also a, a lot of interest in products that enable you to stay in the stock market and still have downside protection. Now, you have the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. The symbol is J-E-P-I. That's the fastest-growing active equity ETF. You've got $6 billion in assets under management. What is that yeah. owned, and how do you get this downside protection that is sort of a, a side aspect of this? Yeah, I think I think it's a big part, of, and it ties down to to the point that Dave's making as well, which is when investors are using active ETFs, they're trying to achieve an outcome. Uh, if they're buying the ultra short, they're they're trying to step out of cash, maybe get a little bit of extra yield above and beyond, um, you know, just the, what what cash is giving you right now. Equity premium income, Jeppy, is a is a great example of that as well. We all know that there's a lot of investors that want a lot of income. Uh, Jeppy has a distributable six to nine percent. Uh, uh, income stream that, that comes off that portfolio. So for investors that are looking for the outcome of income, uh, that certainly uh, uh, checks the box there. Uh, and then because of the way that the strategy is set up, it, it, it should only have about two-thirds the risk of the S&P 500. And uh, the way we're doing that, uh, Bob, is we, we own a, a basket of quality securities, uh, U.S. equities, uh, and then we're writing out-of-the-money calls uh, on that, which, which allow us to collect that premium uh, into the portfolio. And so uh, investors have found that that uh, really can play a role uh, in, in their portfolios to both achieve the income uh, and to get some of that downside protection that you're talking about. So you're, it's, it's a buy right strategy, right? You're, you're buying out of the money calls. You're writing out of the money calls, right? That, 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 that's right. But it's, it's an active uh, strategy, yeah. which I think is key. The underlying basket, there's fundamental research that goes into every single one of those, those stocks that we own. Uh, and then we have the portfolio manager that's writing the the out-of-the-money calls, to your point, uh, that's th doing that with intentionality as well. So it's not just a, a, right. a rigid uh, process. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at the top holdings here, DTE Energy, Microsoft, AbbVie, Progressive, Alphabet. This is quite a group here. Is there any rhyme or reason to the methodology for picking what's in this? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're doing bottoms-up research there. So there's, there's a fundamental analysis to that. Um, we've we've got um, one of the best equity franchises on the street, and so we're doing the research on those individual names. Um, we're we're looking to buy good quality names that can be a core of a portfolio. Dave, uh, talk to me about these downside protection products that are out there. Are, are they getting any more assets uh, gathered? Yeah, uh, and they, what are the risks of owning them? They've, they've been actually one of the big stories for the last two years. Last year, it was about 8 10% of the flows went into products with some sort of downside protection claim, at least. Um, whether they've been things like uh, the covered call writing strategy on the income equities like JEPI, whether they've been other funds that are doing more collared strategies where they're actually buying puts off the bottom, creating so-called defined outcome tranches that you can expect your returns to be in. Those have, those have been pulling in quite a bit of assets over the last two years, really. I expect those products are going to have done well when we look back here in a month or two. Uh, the, the kind of markets we've been have been the markets that are designed for those products. We're 
rather those products are designed for. So I think they're going to have their moment in the sun here. I think that will draw additional assets. And frankly, you mentioned this is a way for people to stay invested. That's what it's done. It's allowed advisors and investors to stay in these equity markets as opposed to just going to cash and yielding a couple basis points. Yeah, they make sense, and certainly in a downside situation, Brian, um, I, I always wonder about what happens when the market goes back to normal. You, you get outflows, again, from these kinds of strategies. You know, we all know the behavioral economics here. People panic, and they think, I can't get out, but I need some protection, and so the money flows out if the market normalizes. You know, I, I think what we're, we're talking about, though, is that investors have more tools than ever to build the portfolios that, they're, that they need. And if investors start with, what am I trying to achieve here? and then look at the tools that are available to them to achieve those goals, uh, they're, they're going to do well. And so now they have more tools that can help them protect for the downside. And you know those, those, those tools should do the job. Uh, and when the job's done, maybe they'll use another ETF that helps them accomplish something else. And you know, I think that's what's so exciting about being investor, an investor right now. Um, I just want to move on and talk about this whole conversion process from mutual funds to ETFs again. And, and Brian, beginning in April, I know uh, JP Morgan is going to begin converting just under $10 billion in mutual funds into ETFs. Uh, we had uh, Gerard O'Reilly and the team on from Dimensional Funds last year when they did uh, that conversion. They were a leader in doing that. Um, why are you doing this now? And is there some kind of tipping point? I keep waiting for this to happen where this small group of funds converting to ETFs eventually turns into a flood for the whole industry. Yeah, well, we, we think the, the, the announcement that we made around converting four mutual funds to, to ETFs is great for investors. Um, as we talked about at the top, um, you know, the benefit of the ETF wrapper um, with, combined with these, with these strategies, we think makes a very attractive proposition. Uh, we are lowering the fees on um, all of the strategies uh, that we've announced uh, that we're going to do that on. So, you know, that's that's something that we're excited about, and 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 we're going to convert those four mutual funds into to ETFs. As far as a tipping point, I, I don't think so. You know, speaking for J.P. Morgan, we've got eight hundred billion dollars in our mutual fund franchise. Uh, we're very successful in that space. We know that investors uh, use mutual funds across their entire uh, book of business. That that plays an important role in the ecosystem as well. So, I, I don't think it's neither or. I think it's a both conversation. Um, we do, we do know that you know. The ETF space is growing rapidly. We know that investors are starting to incorporate more and more ETFs into their portfolios, uh, but they're also using mutual funds, and, and, and those get the job done as well. Dave, uh, yeah, and Brian was speaking like a guy who not only runs ETFs, but has a firm that has a lot of mutual funds, too. <laughs> I, I, let me throw it to you. When, when will it be? We keep waiting for this to happen. Well, you know so how, where I, my I bread's buttered on this. When will it become I a flood? I think... We're in the middle of the flood. You just can't tell because the water's rising a little bit slower than you were expecting. You're not seeing the wave come down the wall. I mean, we had Capital Group just announce, uh, what, yesterday or the day before, that they've licensed Fidelity's non-transparent active system for their conversion and bringing new product to market. So look, we're going to see every major active and passive asset manager in the ETF space. Some of them will convert mutual funds where it makes sense. Some of them, like, say, Fidelity, is going to have to launch clone funds like they did with Magellan because Magellan is sitting in too many 401k plans. It makes it too complicated. So all of this money will eventually show up in the ETF space, but whether it's converted or not is, is largely irrelevant. The point is the active managers are here. They're coming even faster than we expected, and I suspect this is going to be a big year for active flows. Okay, that's a good point. Now, Brian... Um Let's move on. Thema uh, thematic stuff, sustainable stuff. Still a big trend in 2022. We beat it to death in 
ESG in 2019 and 2020, but it's still there. You just launched the uh, J.P. Morgan Climate Change Solution, TEMP, like that, T-E-M-P. <laughs> uh, it's an actively managed ETF around climate change. How is this set up? How do you do active management on climate change? Yeah, so so this is this is designed with data and refined by research is is what we like to say there. So uh, we're we're taking our proprietary uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning process to evaluate millions of different data points across thirteen thousand different securities to establish a, a a starting basket of companies that could potentially benefit from. Uh, the different climate change solutions and trends that will emerge uh, on, on the back of that. And then we're refining it by research. And so our, our active analysts are doing fundamental research on every single one of the names and deciding which of those names deserves a spot within the portfolio. And so we, we think we're combining the best of both worlds. You, the macro story there is, 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 is huge. We estimate there needs to be $140 trillion investment in energy and global infrastructure in order to get to some of the net zero targets uh, that, that many of the countries and regions are, are talking about by 2050. So $140 trillion of investment. These companies are the companies that are working on those solutions right now. And so uh, we're really excited about that. It's the first active um, climate change solution strategy um, to, to, to come out in an ETF. Uh, ticker temp uh, is, yeah. is, is also a nod towards, uh, towards the temperature as well. Well, well I, I, when I look at this list here, the top holdings, Deere, Eaton, Train, Johnson Controls, I, these are global industrials, essentially. It, it, to what extent are they actually truly participating in climate change solutions? I guess I, I have no problem with the idea that these, these companies are very involved in, in, in affecting the climate. How are they involved in climate change solutions, I guess? Yeah, I think I think that's the, the the point. I think one of the things that that we've observed is, is that uh, climate change affects all different industries. Um, it's not just um, we need to move from you know natural resources to solar or renewables or something like that. That certainly plays a big part of it. But it's also in construction. It's also in agriculture. It's also um, in healthcare and a number of other industries that that need to do that. And so um, that's that's why we think this is such a nuanced conversation. And that you can't just set up a simple rule that screens for you know um, you know the, some some buzzwords that help us stock it into into an index. By having the fundamental research that are evaluating those names that you just mentioned, understanding what it is that they're really trying to accomplish when it comes to climate change, and making sure that they do deserve a spot in that portfolio and that they can affect change there, that's where we think the active management really comes into play. Yeah, yeah you, and, you do want. You, you do understand, I want to get a response there, but you, you do understand that there are a lot of people, when I bring this up, I, I get emails from people who say, you know, Bob, those old global industrials we used to be part of the problem, not part of the solution, and now it's more nuanced. We have to consider, you know, you get the fundamental problem here. There are people who push back pretty heavily every time we do this kind of thing um, uh, about that idea. Dave, you want to respond to that? And what, you going to make a point? Yeah. I I think I think you're actually right on the money here, right? ESG, climate change investing, whatever sustainability, it exists on a spectrum, right? And obviously, all the way at one end of the spectrum, you have companies that are only making a direct impact, and that is their entire reason for existing. All the way on the other, you have companies that have broad ranges of business that are actually changing how they do business to respond to what's going on in climate change. And reasonable people can disagree about whether it's smart to invest on one end of those spectrums or not. 
What Brian's talking about here and what a lot of the net zero type solutions we've seen launched in the last year are talking about is looking at the global economy from the perspective of what does it look like in a net zero world? It doesn't mean that you no longer manufacture chemicals and no longer put rubber on your car. It means that how you do those things and the impact of those things is going to change. So it doesn't surprise me at all to see a bunch of global industrials on the list there. I think that's actually the right approach when you're trying to think about the global climate change problem. You just have to recognize that's very different than buying a solar energy company. There are different yeah. kinds of investing for different purposes. What Brian's talking about is actually where the institutional market is very strongly headed, 40 billion in flows into ESG ETFs last year. It's a trend that's going to keep continuing. Dave, uh, Brian, uh, you, you anything you want to say about, I think Dave had a very good response there. They, they were part of the problem and now they're getting more nuance. You, you use the word nuance, I'm reflecting what, what you said, but you understand, I get the emails from people who still don't quite understand how, to, well, how course, is this yeah. part of the global solution? Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I would agree with everything that Dave just said. But I, you know, I think the other thing when we were designing this 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 ETF is we wanted it to be durable. Uh, we wanted yeah. this to be something that could play a role in portfolios for the long term. Uh, we didn't want this to be a market timing thing where I'm in this week, out next week, um, because of you know certain things that got tweeted out or you know what we're seeing in some of the trendy spaces uh, around some of these other areas. We wanted it to be durable and and have a lasting place in portfolios. Um, and as a fiduciary, that's how we're kind of thinking about that. So I, I definitely understand some of those names have, um, you know, have have kind of that nature to them. But uh, that's that's how we designed this um, with with intentionality in mind. Yeah, um, Dave, I want to just switch subjects uh, for a minute and uh, something that's very topical here that I'll be dealing with in the next hour. We've got a Fed meeting coming up uh, in another hour. I, I, I know you're. You know, you're not an economist, but how does the Fed decision factor into ETF holdings? It seems like everything the last month we've been dealing with essentially has got the Fed's fingerprints on it right now. Any thoughts on, on what may happen with the ETF community? Around the Fed. I, I mean, this feels like one of the most forecast and broadcast Fed meetings I think I've ever seen. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of nuance, and that nuance is going to be really important. But in terms of what's going on inside ETFs, no, this doesn't make that much a difference. Most financial that much difference. Most financial advisors are well positioned already going into this. They're not going to be surprised almost regardless of what happens out of this one meeting. I think the bigger issue is: is there some set of relief rally that comes out of this, or is there just a bunch of rearranging that goes on? On based on what comes out of this. Uh, you know, these kinds of earnings running into a Fed meeting is probably the most uncertain the market ever is. So I think most investors yep. just want to get past this and get to Monday next week. I, I completely agree. Uh, we, uh, I sat and watched uh, Microsoft's trading after hours after their earnings release yesterday. Insanity. It, it, moved, <laughs> it, it, it was truly breathtaking. It went from after the earnings release down 5%. Then the conference call where they clarified and gave guidance, it went to up 5 The second biggest stock in the United States, a $2 trillion market cap, moved 10% in two hours. And when I pointed this out to people, they said, well, you know, there's a lot of bot trading around the headlines. And I said, no, that, that's pretty breathtaking. And that shows you how crazy and weird and jittery uh, the market is, and also highlights that people ought to be very, very careful trading in the after hours, which is the it's, obvious. It's a great week to take a vacation and come back Monday and look at your portfolio. I think that's yeah. actually the best investment advice I could give. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and don't trade in the after hours. <laughs> don't, sure. trade at, don't trade at 5.30 when middle of, you're waiting for a conference call. Yeah, yeah really, seriously.
Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Dave Nautic from ETF Trends. Dave, thanks for sticking with us. Um, I wanted to ask you about two news items uh, that came out in the last week that caught my eye. Uh, one was a report from the Center for American Progress. That's a progressive think tank. Think tank, and they say the creators of indexes have to be more transparent in how they create indexes and what goes in them. I mean, the creators of indexes are the people you and I know, the S and P's and the MSCI's of the world. Um, I'm wondering if this might get the year of the SEC. Uh, and, and what's the issue here? What was uh, the center complaining about? Uh, well, so. You know, I think there has been this this pushback against passive management that we've talked about many, many times, right? This is a normal thing that we hear every time the index business gets bigger and bigger. People want to poke holes at it. And one of the arguments is that if you're the S&P and you're making the S&P 500, you should have the exact same set of responsibilities and rules and regulations that, say, the active manager running Fidelity Magellan should have. Um, now, I understand how people get there, but it also just doesn't really represent how the real world works, right? You personally could create the Bob Pisani index in eight seconds in a spreadsheet. At what point do you then become required to do something about it? When you license it to an issuer who then decides to start running money against it? Well, that's bizarre because the end investor has no contractual relationship with the Pisani index. So who's going to sue who? So that's why index providers have traditionally had this sort of not protected, but a slightly set aside role. They're much more of a media company, if you think about it, than they are an actual manager of money. Because even once I've licensed the S&P 500 or the Pisani index, I, as the manager of that fund, still have to do the work of running a fund. I think people assume that these funds just get run by spreadsheets, by robots. It's not true. There is somebody sitting on the desk making sure that SPY is correctly allocated, that money is being put to work, that uh, overnight cash is being invested. Like, there's a real job that's at stake here. That's the person who should be on the hook. Yeah. I guess the, this goes into what I call the politics of indexing. Um, there are funds like the Russell indexes, the Russell 1000, they're very mechanical. They're basically market cap index, and those are pretty easy. Uh, but others, and people have argued the S&P 500 is not a mechanical index. It's a committee. Uh, even sure. though we say it's the 500 biggest companies, it basically is. Ish. But when you saw <laughs> with, with Tesla, you know, it could sometimes, weird things can happen. Uh, although Tesla is a bit of an anomaly uh, that's happened. So well, I'm but just generally- think about the cues, right? The Qs has an incredibly complex index when they do a rebalance. So it's a legit concern, right? It's not everything is simple. Yeah, and it's it's the hundred non-financial stocks that happen to list on the NASDAQ. You know, with a so strange the, reverse cap weighting allocation system to make sure that Apple doesn't yeah, become too much yeah. of it. That's, that's a very that's not exactly the Russell one thousand there. But, but yes, right. it's a it's a that goes to what I say, the politics of index construction. How exactly are things, these things constructed? Many of them are not really market cap weighted, but we all know that. I mean, everybody sort of knows that. that. What I don't like about the implication of this is somehow there's something nefarious going on when it's pretty transparent how they're picking the stuff. You just have to pay attention. And I wonder, like, yeah, oh, I, well, we need to know more about it. I don't know. Are you not paying attention to you? If you don't understand how they're constructing this, you're not reading the prospectus. It's not right. a mystery That's the for thing most is, of these. This is 
Now, there, there are some edge cases here, so I don't want to just completely dismiss this. There are plenty of indexes that are truly black boxes, right? Trust us, we have a smart beta engine. It spits out the holdings. Here are the inputs, but we're not going to tell you all of the nitty-gritty math. I understand why some folks might be nervous about that, to which my answer would be don't own that product. Right, right. I think that's a very good point, and thank you for clarifying that. There, there is some smart beta stuff, uh, AI-powered stuff, frankly, yeah, that mystifies me. When I say, why is this here? Uh, can you explain? And they almost like, well, that's what the algorithm spits out. So that's a, not exactly. a very satisfying answer. So thank you for clarifying that, and I, I agree with you on that. Um, let me just move on um, about, um, there's, there's another story that's been out recently about model ETF providers. And, uh, you know, these ETF providers provide, you know, recommend baskets of stocks for clients. They're pretty popular. We've talked about them. Um, but the firms designing them, this research has shown, tend to favor their own exchange-traded funds. Um, and they tend to have higher fees and lower performance than recommended unaffiliated ETFs. That's what this study says. Um, I think there's a lot of value to a model portfolio, um, but is it, first off, surprising that some would recommend their own ETFs? Is there a, is there a problem here, I guess, there is, without so, the disclosure? So the fact that... The fact that you know Vanguard would recommend Vanguard funds and BlackRock would recommend BlackRock funds shock, should shock absolutely nobody in the history of finance. I mean, that is pretty normal. If I'm going to put together a free portfolio that shows you how to construct an aggressive portfolio using Wisdom Tree funds, of course I'm going to include Wisdom Tree funds in it. I mean, that's the reason I put the portfolio together was to teach you how to use my products. That's mostly what model portfolios are. They're great education tools. Now, of course, some financial advisors, you know, subscribe to a house model, say at a Wells Fargo or an LPL or something like that, and they put their money in that religiously. And in that case, sure, there is some sort of uh, actual work being done to take ownership of a client's portfolio by the model provider. But Everybody can say they have a model. There's a big difference between an advisor algorithmically giving money to a model and just BlackRock publishing one. And the report that you're talking about completely conflates the two. Uh, real money portfolios versus paper model portfolios uh, versus paper model portfolios that then get tweaked by advisors, which is probably the norm in model portfolios. Very few clients are in the model at the model weights with zero other exposure. That's just not the real world we live in. They're guidelines that help investors make better decisions. I don't get, quite get what they're after here. Yeah, again, this is picking at the edges of ETFs, index construction, and portfolios. I don't think anyone should be surprised. Again, I just tell everyone, pay attention. I don't find uh, Vanguard recommending Vanguard ETFs to be shocking in the least, or Fidelity recommending Fidelity ETFs. What, I'm, what I want to know is, is the underlying stuff okay? And, you know, to a certain extent, you can, you can do all the disclosure you want. Uh, it doesn't necessarily prevent people from making incorrect decisions or preventing market downturns. So I'm in favor of disclosure, but there's a point at which, uh, you know, you're not going to disclose away risk. You're just not. And sometimes right. people don't pay attention and they need to pay more attention. I'm, I'm more, I think you and I are very aligned on this. I, I call it common sense. There's a point at which I could have, instead of 100 pages of disclosures, I could have 500 pages of disclosure, and I'm still not necessarily going to be better informed, nor is it going to be, create a better informed 
uh, investor I, I, necessarily. I would say the opposite, right? The 500-page disclosure guarantees that nobody will read it. A good yeah. one sheet is actually something that's particularly useful. And you know what? Every one of these model providers and every one of these index providers has a good one sheet. And that's a, that's a tough one to write. Uh, and write correctly. Uh, Got to run, Dave. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Dave Nautic, everybody, is the CIO and Director of Research at ETF Trends. Dave, thank you for joining us. And everybody, thank you for listening in to the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.